This video is brought to you by Devout Decals, makers of reusable Catholic art for your home altar, your bedroom, and your home classroom. Unfortunately, we live in a time when the subject of heresy is timely, so to speak. And so we continue now this week with the examination of ancient heresies by St. Alphonsus Liguori. Here we're going to examine the heresies of the 3rd century. Again, the reason we do this is because the synthesis of all heresies is what modernism is defined as. According to Pope St. Pius X, the probably most important pope of the 20th century, the one who defined modernism, the one who attempted to destroy modernism within the church, who instituted various measures to at least buy the church some time to find ways to rid herself of the scourge of modernism. Efforts which came to an end during Vatican II, and afterwards his oath against modernism was abolished by a modernist pope. So, if we want to understand how we got to the situation we're in now, then I present to you heresies of the 3rd century according to St. Alphonsus, Alphonsus Liguori as taken from his seminal work, Heresies and Their Refutation. Heresies of the 3rd century. Praxius, a native of Phrygia, was at first a Montanist, but afterwards becoming an enemy of Montanus, he caused him to be condemned by Pope Zephyrinus, concealing his own heresy at the same time. Being soon discovered, he retracted his opinions, but soon afterwards openly proclaimed them. He denied the mystery of the Trinity, saying that in God there was but one person and one nature, whom he called the Father. This sole person, he said, descended into the womb of the Virgin, and being born of her by means of the Incarnation, was called Jesus Christ. According to this impious doctrine, then, it was the Father who suffered death, and on that occasion his followers were called Patropassionists. The most remarkable among his disciples was Berilius, Notius, and Sibelius. Berilius was bishop of Bostris in Arabia. He had said that Christ before his incarnation had no divinity, and in his incarnation had no divinity of his own, but only that of the Father. Noel Alexander says that Origen refuted him and brought him back to the Catholic faith. Notus, more obstinate in error, said that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost were but one person and one God. He and his followers were cut off from the church, and as he died impenitent, he was refused Christian burial. The most celebrated promoter of this error was Sibelius. Sibelius was born in the Ptolemies in Africa and lived in the year 227. He shed a greater luster, if we may say so, on the heresy of his master, and on that account this impious sect was called Sibelians. He denied the distinction of the three persons in the Trinity, and said they were but three names to distinguish the different operations of the divinity. The Trinity, he said, was like the sun in which we distinguish the light, the heat, and the form, though the sun was but one and the same. The light represents the sun, the heat, the Holy Ghost, and the figure or substance of the Son itself was the Father, who in one person alone contained the Son and the Holy Ghost. This error we will refute in the last part of the work. Paul of Samosota was Bishop of Antioch. Before his appointment to the see, he was poor. But afterwards, by exhortation and sacrilege, by selling justice and making false promises, he amassed a great deal of wealth. He was so vain and proud that he never appeared in public without a crowd of courtiers. He was always preceded by one hundred servants and followed by a like number, and his own praises were the only subjects of his sermons. He not only abused those who did not flatter him, but frequently also offered them personal violence. And at length his vanity arrived at such a pitch that he had a choir of courtesans to sing hymns in his praise in the church. He was so dissolute in his morals that he had always a number of ladies of lax morals in his train. In fine, this impious prelate crowned all his crimes with heresy. 
The first of his blasphemies was that Jesus Christ never existed until he was born of the Virgin, and hence he said he was a mere man. He also said that in Jesus there were two persons and two sons of God, one by nature and the other by adoption. He also denied the trinity of the divine persons, and although he admitted the names of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, not, however, denying, as Orsi thinks, personal existence to the Son and the Holy Ghost, yet he did not recognize either one or the other as persons of the trinity, attributing to the Father alone the incarnation and passion. His disciples inserted those errors in their profession of faith and in the formula of baptism, but Noel Alexander says it is uncertain whether Paul was the author of this heresy. Manes was the founder of the Manichaeans, and he adopted this name on account of taking to himself the title of the Paraclete, and to conceal the lowliness of his condition, since he was at first only a servant in Persia, but was liberated and adopted by an old lady of that country. She sent him to the public academy to be educated, but he made little progress in learning. Whatever he wanted in learning, he made up in impudence, and on that account he endeavored to institute a new group, and to enlist the peasantry under the banner of this heresy, he studied magic with particular attention. To acquire a name for himself, he undertook to cure the king of Persia's son, who was despaired of by the physicians. Unfortunately for him, however, the child did not survive, notwithstanding all his endeavors to save him, and he was thrown into prison, and would have been put to an end only to be he bribed the guards to let him escape. Misfortune, however, pursued him. After traveling through various countries, he fell again into the king's hands, who ordered him to suffer a most gruesome fate. His body was thrown to the beast and his skin hung up in a city gate, and thus the impious Manes closed his career. He left many followers after him, among whom was St. Augustine in his youth, but enlightened by the Almighty, he abandoned his errors and became one of his most strenuous opponents. The errors of Manes can be cla classed under the following heads. First, he admitted the plurality of gods, alleging that there were two principles, one of good and the other of evil. Another of his errors was that man had two souls, one bad, which the evil principle created together with the body, and another good, created by the good principle, which was co-eternal, and of the same nature with God. All the good actions which man performs he attributes to the good soul, and all the evil ones he commits to the bad soul. He deprived man of free will, saying that he was always carried irresistibly forward by a force which his will could not resist. He denied the necessity of baptism and entirely abolished that sacrament. Among many other errors, the Manichaeans detested the flesh as being created by the evil principle, and therefore denied that Jesus Christ ever took a body like ours, and they were directed to every sort of impurity. They spread almost over the entire world, and though condemned by many popes and persecuted by many emperors as Diocletian, Gratian, and Theodosius, but especially by Justin and Justinian, who caused many of them to be, well, suffer another gruesome fate by fire, still they were not annihilated till the year 1052, when, as Baronius relates, Henry II, finding some of them lurking in France, caused them to be uh, ended by rope. The refutation of this heresy we have written in the book called The Truth of the Faith. Tertullian was born, as Fleury relates, in Carthage, and his father was a centurion in the Praetorian bands. He was at first a pagan, but was converted around the year 197, and was a priest for 40 years, and, and expired at a very advanced age. He wrote many works of the highest utility to the church, on baptism, penance, idolatry, on the soul, on prescriptions, and on apology for the Christians, which has acquired great celebrity. 
Although in his book on prescriptions, he called Montanus a heretic, still, according to the general opinion of authors, he fell into Montanism himself. Baronius says that he was cut off from the church and excommunicated by Pope Zephyrinus. Tertullian was a man of the great, greatest austerity. He had the greatest veneration for continents. He practiced extraordinary watchings, and on account of a dispute he had with the clergy of Rome, he attached himself to the Montanists, who, to the most rigid mortification, joined the belief that Montanus was the Holy Ghost. Noel Alexander proves on the authority of St. Jerome, St. Hilary, St. Pacinius, St. Optus, and St. Augustine that he asserted the church could not absolve adulterers, and those who married a second time were adulterers, and that it was not lawful to fly from persecution. He called the Catholics Piscini or animals. Fleury says that Tertullian taught that the soul was a body of a palpable form, but transparent because one of the prophetesses heard so in a vision. Both Fleury and Noel Alexander say that he forsook the Montanists before his own passing, but a group who called themselves Tertullianists after him remained in Carthage for 200 years until the time of St. Augustine, when they once more returned to the bosom of the church. Origen was an Egyptian, and his early days were spent in Alexandria. His father was St. Leonidas the Martyr, who had him educated in every branch of sacred and profane literature. It is said that his own father held him in the highest veneration, and that often while he slept he used to kiss his bosom as the temple where the Holy Ghost dwelt. At the age of 18, he was made catechist of the Church of Alexandria, and he discharged his duties so well that the very pagans flocked to hear him. Plutarch, who afterwards became an illustrious martyr of the faith of Christ, was one of his disciples. In the height of the persecution, he never ceased to assist the confessors of Christ, despising both torments and his own perishing. He had the greatest horror of sensual pleasures, and it is related to him that for fear of offending against chastity and to avoid temptation, he, he engaged in activities you can't say on YouTube, interpreting the 12th verse of the 19th chapter of St. Matthew in a very wrong sense. He refuted the Arabians who denied the immortality of the soul and converted Berilius, as we have already seen, who denied the divinity of Jesus Christ. He also converted Ambrose from the errors of the Valentians. He was so desirous of martyrdom that his mother was obliged to take away his clothes to prevent him from going to his father, who was in prison for the faith. All this, however, was to no purpose. He avoided her vigilance, flew to his father, and when he would not be allowed to speak to him, exhorted him by letter to persevere in the faith. At the age of 18, he was prefect of the studies of Alexandria. When he was composing his commentaries on scriptures, he dictated to seven or eight amanuenses at the same time. He edited different editions of the scriptures, compiling the Tetrapola, the Hexapola, and the Octopla. The Tetrapola had four columns in each page, and the first was the version of the Seventy, or Septuagint, and the second that of Aquila, and the third that of Symmachus, and the fourth that of Theodosian. The Hexapola had six columns besides the former, contained the Hebrew text and a Greek translation. Finally, the Octopla contained, besides the former, two other versions, compiled by some Hebrews. His name was so famous at the time that all priests and doctors consulted him in any different manner. Presuming too much on his wisdom, he fell into different errors by wishing to interpret many texts of scripture in a mystical way, rejecting the literal sense. Those, he says, were adhered to the letter of the scripture, will never see the kingdom of God. Hence, we should seek the spirit of the word, which is hidden and mysterious. He is defended by some, but the majority condemn him, although he endeavored to clear himself by saying that he wrote his sentiments merely as opinions and subjected them to the judgment of his readers. 
He was obliged to go into Achaia, a country at that time distracted by various heresies. Journey, he persuaded two bishops of our Lord's land, whom he visited, that it would be of great service to the church if he was ordained a priest. Yielding to his suggestions, they ordained him, and this so displeased Demetrius, bishop of Alexandria, that in a council he deposed and excommunicated him. Several other bishops, however, received him in his misfortunes and entertained him honorably. Orsi on the authority of Eusebius tells us that in the persecution of Decius, he was imprisoned a long time, loaded with irons and a great iron ring on his neck, and that he was not only tormented in the legs in a horrible manner, but was, was likewise had implements used on him. Dionysius, Eusebius says, wrote him a letter, or rather a small treatise, to animate and console him. And from that circumstance, Cardinal Orsi proves the fallacy of Dupin's conjecture, that the sentence passed against him by Demetrius was enforced under his successors Aracla and Dionysius. Origen did not long survive the torments he endured in that persecution. He expired in tear in the year 253, at the 69th of his age. Bernini tells us on the authority of St. Epiphanius, thinking, however, that this was foisted into St. Epiphanius's work by the enemies of Origen, that he denied the faith by offering incense to idols to avoid the indignities and insults inflicted on him by an Ethiopian, and that he was then freed from prison and his life spared. After that, he went from Alexandria to Jerusalem, and at the request of the clergy, people went into the pulpit to preach. It happened, however, that opening the book of the Psalms, to explain them, the first words he read were those of the 49th Psalm. God said to the sinner, Why dost thou declare my justices and take my covenant into thy mouth? Struck dumb with sorrow, he began to weep bitterly and left the pulpit without saying a word. Not only sent Epiphanius, but Eusebius before him, bear witness to Origen's fall. Although Bernini says this story is quite fabulous, yet Patavius, Daniel Hewitt, Paggi, and especially Noel Alexander say it is a fact. Roncaglia is of opinion that Noel Alexander's arguments are groundless and that Baronius's opinion carries more weight with it. We can decide nothing as to the salvation of Origen, though Baronius says that St. Simeon Salus saw him in perdition. Still, all is a mystery known to God alone. We know, however, on the authority of Baronius, that his doctrine was condemned by Pope Anastasius and Pope Gelasius, and afterwards by the Fifth General Council. The substance of the errors of Origen, as well as I could collect from the works of Noel Alexander, Fleury, Hermont, Orsi, von Rast, who gives a great deal of information in a small space, and others, was all included in his Perechion, or Treatise on Principles. This treatise, Fleury says, was translated by Rufinus, who endeavored to correct it as much as possible. The intent of Origen in this work was to refute Valentine, Marcion, and Ebion, who taught that men are either essentially good or essentially wicked. He said that God alone was good and immutable, but that his creatures were capable of either good or evil, by making use of their free will for a good purpose or by perverting it for a wicked one. Another of his opinions was that the souls of men were of the same nature as the celestial spirits, that is, composed of spirit and matter, that they were all created before the beginning of the world, but that as punishment for some crimes committed, they were shut up in the sun, moon, and other planets, and even in human bodies, as it were in a prison, to punish them for a time. After which, being freed from their servitude by, by the end of life, they went to heaven to receive the reward for their virtues, or to the perdition to suffer the punishment of their sins. But such rewards and punishments were not eternal. Hence, he said, the blessed in heaven could be banished from that abode of happiness for faults committed there, and that the punishment of the devils and the condemned would not last for all eternity, because at the end of the world, Jesus Christ would be again crucified, and they would participate in the general redemption. He also said that before the creation of this world, there existed many others, and that after this had ceased to exist, many more would be created, for as God was never idle, so he never was without a world. 
He taught many other erroneous opinions. In fact, his doctrine is entirely infected with the maxims of Plato, Pythagoras, and to the Manichaeans. Cassidorus, speaking of Origen, says, I wonder how the same man could contradict himself so much. For since the days of the apostles, he had no equal in that part of his doctrine, which was approved of, and no one ever erred more grossly in the part which was condemned. Cabasitius says that Pope Gelasius, following the example of Astentatius, gave his sentence relative in origin in the Roman Council. We declare that those works of origin which the blessed Jerome does not reject can be read, but we condemn all others with their author. After the end of Origen and his followers disturbed the church very much by maintaining and propagating his errors, Hermont relates that Pope Anastasius had a great deal of difficulty in putting down the troubles occasioned by the Originists in Rome, who got footing there under the auspices of Melania by means of the priest Rufinus. The author of the notes on Fleury says that Anastasius wrote to John of Jerusalem to inform him of how matters were going on, that he on, the, on that account cut off Rufinus from the church. In the reign of the Emperor Justinian, some originist monks who lived in Alora, founded by St. Saba, under the abbot Nonus, began to disseminate their errors among this brethren, and in a short time infected the principal Laura, but were expelled by the abbot Gelasius. Favored, however, by Theodore of Caesarea, they got possession of the great Laura again, and expelled the greater part of the monks who disagreed with them. In the meantime, Nonus perished, and his successor, George, be being deposed for immorality, by his own party, the Catholic monks again got possession of the Laura and elected Conan, one of the party, abbot. Finally, in the twelfth canon of the Second Council of Constantinople, both Origen and all those who would persist in defending his doctrine were condemned. Novatius and Novation Novatius was a priest of the Church of Carthage. St. Cyprian relates that he was a man of turbulent disposition, seditious and avaricious, and that his faith was suspected by the bishops. He was accused of robbing the orphans and widows, and appropriating to his own use the money given him for the use of the church. It is said he allowed his father to end of lack of food, and afterwards refused to bury him, and that he caused the end of his wife by, by using force and causing premature labor. He was also one of the principal agents in getting the deacon Felicimus ordained priest without the leave or knowledge of St. Cyprian, his bishop, and was one of the principal leaders of the schism of Novatian, exciting as many as he could to oppose the lawful pope, Cornelius. We now come to speak of the character and errors of Novatian. Being possessed by an evil spirit, he was baptized in bed during a dangerous fit of sickness, and when he recovered, he neglected getting the ceremonies of baptism supplied, and never received confirmation, which according to the discipline of the church in those days, he ought to have received after baptism, and his followers, for that reason, afterwards rejected this sacrament. He was afterwards ordained priest, the bishop dispensing in the irregularity he incurred by being baptized in bed. Hence, his ordination gave great umbrage both to the clergy and the people. While the persecution was raging, the deacons begged of him to leave his place of concealment and assist the faithful who were dragged to the place of punishment. But he answered that he did not henceforth intend to discharge the duties of a priest, that he had his mind made up for other objects. This was nothing less than the popedom which he had the ambition to pretend to, to puffed up by the applause he received for his oratorical powers. At this time, Cornelius was elected pope, and he, by intrigue, got himself consecrated privately by three ignorant bishops whom he had intoxicated. Thus, he was the first anti-pope who ever raised a schism in the Church of Rome. But what will not ambition do? While he administered the Eucharist to his partisans, he exacted an oath from each of them, saying, Swear to me, by the blood of Jesus Christ, that you will never leave my party and join Cornelius. 
The errors of Novatius and Novatian were the following. They denied that the church could use any indulgence with those who became idolaters through their fear of persecution, or that she could grant pardon for any mortal sin committed after baptism, and they denied the sacrament of confirmation. Like the Montanists, they condemned second marriages and refused communion on the point of death to those who contracted them. These were not the only heretics who disturbed the church during the century. Nepos, an Egyptian bishop about the year 284, again raked up the errors of the old millenarians, taking the promise of the apocalypse in a literal sense, that Jesus Christ would reign on earth for the space of a thousand years, and that the saints should enjoy all manner of sensual delights. The angelicals offered the supreme adoration, which should be given to God alone, to the angels, adored them as the creators of the world, and pretended to lead angelic lives themselves. The apostolicals said it was not lawful for anyone to possess property of any sort, and that the riches of this life were an insurmountable obstacle to salvation. These heretics received no married persons into this group. The third century was a wild time, as you can hear. The first anti-pope appearing, people who worshipped angels not in the sense of venerating them as saints the way is the which is the common and actual accepted practice but actually worshiping them as the creator of the world and many numerous bizarre heresies but the one thing that is never escapes when i read these for you which i've been doing for the last couple of months now the one thing that never is lost on me when going over these is that you hear shades of this today the millenarians, the ones who believe that Christ will come and reign on earth for a thousand years. We see that in Protestantism. There are Protestant groups who believe that's coming. We see that heresy even sort of in, among the modernists who believe that we are to create essentially a paradise on earth through our works, almost a works-based salvation. There are many others. I'm curious what other hints you saw of this in that text, so let me know in the comments, please. And hit like and subscribe if you haven't, it does help. So to sharing this on social media, that helps a lot too. And as always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein, Ave Maria.